So it was my sophomore year in high school. And my freshman year, I'd been on the wrestling team. And so sophomore year, I was going to do the same. And I decided I wanted to go into it in much better shape than I had been the year before. So I went out for the cross-country team in the fall of my sophomore year. And I'll never forget the first day of practice. I showed up, and there she was, Mandy. And Mandy, I saw her, and the angels were singing, and time slowed down, and it didn't really matter what anybody said or did. And over that next couple months, I got to know Mandy. We talked a lot, and I'd see her in the hallways, and I'd flirt with her, and I'd do that thing that you do, guys. You know, you puff your chest out, and you're like, what's up, Mandy? And, uh, you know, with all that humility, you know, and she would blush, and she'd run over to her friends and whisper to them, and they'd all giggle. And over time, I realized, Mandy likes me. And then I realized, I like Mandy. So I decided, I'm going to ask her out on a date. And this was scary for me because Mandy was, she was an older woman. She was 16 and a quarter, and I was 15 and three quarters, and we were generations apart. So I decided on the day I was going to do this. And that day came, and it was that afternoon right before a class. I caught her in the hallway, and I said, hey, Mandy, can I talk to you after class? There's something I've been wanting to talk to you about. And she said, well, that's perfect, because there's something I've been wanting to talk to you about, Nathan. And inside, I just went, oh, she's thinking what I'm thinking. So you can imagine that was the longest hour of class ever. But I met her in the hall afterwards, and she said, Nathan, I know you wanted to talk to me, but let me start. We've been talking for a couple months now, and we've gotten to know each other, and I can't believe I haven't said anything before this. And in my head, I'm just thinking, it's okay, Mandy, just say it, because we both know what this is. <laughs> and she went on, she said, I don't know how to say this, but my name's Melissa. a horrible person let somebody walk around and call him the wrong name for four months. <laughs> let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought you knew somebody or you thought you knew something only to find out you had no idea? But with the information you have and from where you can see, you formed a viewpoint and you acted on it only to find out that reality was just miles and miles from what you thought it was? Well, we all do that. And the end result is usually how I felt that day. Embarrassment and disappointment and frustration. And the thing that gets me looking back at that is if I had just seen reality, well, then I would have acted differently. If I had just seen what a real name was, none of that would have happened. Now, I can get over that. That was 17 years ago. It was high school. I've moved on. But here's what I wonder about all of us. Is it possible we're walking through life with some viewpoints about ourselves, about other people, about our Heavenly Father, with some views that we just don't get over? In fact, we live those views out. And is it possible that some of those viewpoints could be miles and miles from reality? I don't say that to scare anybody. I say that because while I don't know everyone in this room, I do know this. Nobody in this room wants to get to the end of this life, having lived out your views about yourself and about your relationships with other people and about our Heavenly Father. Nobody wants to get to the end of it and look back and say, oh, I wish I'd seen differently. Because if I had seen differently, well, then I'd have lived differently. 
See, there's an event. It's the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I believe that the God of the universe wants to use that event to give us a different view of ourselves. One that is more than the one we carry around all week long and all life long. And I believe he wants to use that event to give us a view of our relationships with others that has much greater potential than what we strive for in those relationships. And I believe that he wants to use that event to give us a view of him that is much, much, much better than what we settle for oftentimes. And I don't know about you, but I think about that and I think, God, whatever your view is, I want to just hold on to that all week long and all life long. In fact, throughout this series, I have a prayer I'm praying and I'd invite you to pray it with me. And it's just, Lord, help me see differently so that I can live differently. And so to see differently sometimes, we've got to move to a spot where we can see differently. We've got to get a different vantage point. So these next three weeks, that's exactly what we're doing. We're going to get a different vantage point on ourselves, a different vantage point on our relationships with others. And you'll hear about that. But today, we're going to get a different vantage point on Jesus. Because it all starts, and it all centers around, and it all ends with Jesus. And that should cause us to get a different vantage point. So this morning, as we look at an event in John chapter 12, here's what I hope we'll see. I hope in the midst of this event that we'll see ourselves in it. Because if you're like me, it's really easy to open the pages of scripture and think, well, I get it and they didn't get it. But we forget that we get to look back at what they went through in real time. And as we look at what these different viewpoints were of Jesus in that final week of his life, you know what we're going to see is that those viewpoints really don't look too different from the viewpoints we have, that we walk around with, our, our vantage point of Jesus. And the great news for them, and the great news for us, is that Jesus, in the middle of this event, he pointed somebody out. He said, see that? See what they're doing? Do that. You do that, and you'll have a vantage point of me and who I really am and what I'm really about. And so your Bibles are open to John chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be up on screen so you can follow along. But there's a few things you need to know as we look at this chapter. It's Passover. And what that means is that people are just descending, they're converging upon Jerusalem. Thousands of people. It's estimated that Jerusalem, every year during Passover, the population would swell up three, four, five times what it usually is. And so if you have a place that has the same physical dimensions, but you add more people into it, your population density goes up. And you can't move more than three or four feet without, somebody, without bumping into somebody. Think of Sports Authority Field at Mile High. Most of the time it sits empty. But when there's a Bronco game, what happens? People descend. They converge on the stadium. And you can't go more than a few feet without bumping into somebody. Well, that's what Jerusalem looked like as we enter the final week of Jesus' life. And so we're going to pick up here. It's a Saturday evening, and Jesus is at somebody's house. And look at verse 9. Here's what it says. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there at this house and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. 
So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So already in three verses, we've got two different viewpoints of who Jesus is. And they are completely different from one another. On the one hand, the people, they're excited because there was a man in Bethany named Lazarus and he had died. And Jesus showed up and brought him back. Well, that would excite anybody. Imagine being at that Bronco game and it's halftime. And what happens at halftime? Everybody spills into the concourse to eat. And you're standing in a food line. And you suddenly see this commotion out of the corner of your eye. And there are people running around and they're sharing all this exciting news. And the news finally gets over to the food line you're standing in that there's a new food vendor over here. And he makes food that will just change your life. We all have those foods. You know, for me, first time I was at Waterworld, first bite of a funnel cake. Life-changing. We all have those foods. So imagine that, and somebody runs up to you and they say, that guy over there, the new food vendor, he makes that. And it is life-changing, and he's giving it away free. Tell me, what would you do if you're in that food line and you hear about this over here? Well, you'd go. In fact, the whole line would go because this was that exciting for everybody. Almost everybody. Who is this not exciting for? Well, the guy whose line you were in. Because he thought he was going to get your business. And he sees all these people run over to another line. That'd be hard. In fact, if you're that food vendor and you'd had that happen enough times, well, what would you do? You'd be thinking, let's get rid of the new food vendor. Let's get rid of his life-changing food. And this is how the religious leaders felt about Jesus. In the chapter before this, we see them plotting to get rid of him. They say, here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so to the people, Jesus was a miracle worker. But to the religious leaders, he was a threat to their way of life. And it continues, verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Now this is different because for the last three years, Jesus would do this thing where it seemed like he kind of he stepped back if he could. He would perform these miracles, and then at the end of it, he'd say this puzzling thing. He'd say, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody what you just saw. And that's been so frustrating for me every time I read it. Because I think, Jesus, you just did something incredible. People should know about this. But it was because it wasn't time yet. This was the time. And so now he's going in to where all the action is at. He's going into Jerusalem. And we see, when we look at the great crowd's response to him, we see a third view of who they think he is. Look at this. Verse 13, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. See, this crowd, they've seen this before. 150 years before this, the grandparents and the great-grandparents of the people in this crowd they were under the thumb of Syria. This crowd was under the thumb of the mighty Roman Empire, but their grandparents, their great-grandparents, they were ruled over by Syria. And they didn't think 
they'd get out. They, they longed to be free. And then this group, the Maccabees, showed up. And by all accounts, it looked like the Maccabees should have been crushed. But they led a revolt against Syria. And they won. And what that victory meant was independence. It meant political asylum for the Jews. And so they paraded him through the streets. The leader of the Maccabees, Simon, they paraded him through the streets. And you know what they were doing? They were throwing their robes and their cloaks onto the street, waving palm branches because this was a sign of a political military victory. And so this crowd sees Jesus coming and they're thinking, here we go again. We're going to finally get out from under the iron fist of the Roman Empire. And they think he's come to free them. And then something really puzzling happens. But it was most confusing for Jesus' followers. Look at verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And then I love this next partial verse. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. I'm sure they didn't, because think about what they've seen. For three years, they've walked with Jesus, and they, they've seen him bring people back to life. They've seen him give sight to the blind. They've seen him heal people. The guy has walked on water. A storm came up, and he looked at the storm, and he said, settle down. And the storm listened to him. So they're thinking this is the most powerful being we have ever seen. And surely a guy that powerful, he's going to make an entrance. Maybe on a war horse, just like the ones the Roman soldiers were sitting on. Or maybe a guy that powerful, he's going to make an entrance on a dragon. Or maybe one of those giant eagles from the end of Lord of the Rings when they save Frodo. Spoiler alert from 10 years ago. Sorry if you haven't seen it yet. <laughs> but he shows up on a donkey? See, the disciples were confused because they'd seen the power he had and they thought, surely he's going to reign. He's going to rule with all this power and we're going to reign with him and we're going to sit at his right and we're going to sit at his left and it's going to be awesome. Imagine you have a friend who goes on to become the president and he does all these incredible things and so they throw a parade for him. And you're at the parade, and you can hear the roar of the crowd as he's starting to come around the corner. And the authorities are there, and they've got all their vehicles and all their artillery. And it's a giant celebration. And he comes around the corner on a scooter. <laughs> Points you out in the crowd, waving at you. And you're like, I do not know you. I do not know you right now. This is how they felt. They were confused by him because they thought there was something in it for them for much of the time that they followed Jesus. We move on to verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when they called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, and listen to this, because, that is, here's the reason, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. In other words, they wanted to see him not for who he was, but what he could do for them. And then finally, we see more frustration from the Pharisees. Look at this. 
Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And so in 10 verses here, we see four different viewpoints of who Jesus is. We see miracle worker, we see threat, we see political military leader, and then we just see a source of confusion because I thought he was going to do something for me. And what we see here and what we learn here is something about human nature. And that's this, that we are incredibly blinded by our biases. Incredibly blinded. There's a story of a border patrol agent. And he had a long career as a border patrol agent, but there was a five-year span during his career in which this guy would come through every few months in a truck. And this agent being trained in what to look for, you know, in terms of drugs and weapons and all that, He'd stop the guy every few months and and he'd say, you know what, something's not right here. We need to check this out. So they'd pull the bumpers off the truck. They'd pull the panels off the truck. They'd search outside the truck. They'd search underneath. They'd search the guy, never find a thing. So this went on for five years. And then he got word that one day, this guy he'd seen every few months was in prison and he had been put in there for smuggling. And he's thinking, well, that's weird because we searched him every few months and we didn't find a thing. So he goes to see him in prison. He says, look, you're serving your time. So there's nothing you can tell me right now that's going to get you in any more trouble. So I got to ask you, what were you smuggling? The guy smiled and he said, trucks. (laughs) Smuggling trucks. But isn't it true that because of our biases, we don't see the reality right in front of us. That's what happened to the people. And that's what happens to us. They had their biases on who this was making their entrance into Jerusalem and they missed the reality right in front of them. But one person, one person, what thousands of people missed, one person got. And that one person, they didn't get it in this moment. They actually got it less than 24 hours prior to this. We're going to go back to the beginning of John chapter 12. And we're going to pick up in verse 2. Jesus is at this dinner because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so we see in verse 2 why, why he's at this dinner. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. There's a dinner in Jesus' honor because Lazarus had lived in Bethany and all of Bethany knew that Lazarus had died. And yet here he is reclining at the table, just as alive as he'd ever been. And I thought, this is so funny. John, John skips right past Lazarus. Is it because Lazarus didn't say anything? I mean, you'd think if you knew somebody who died and then came back to life, you'd probably want to know what they have to say. But John just skips right over it, and he zeroes in on this thing that took place right after this. And I want you to pay attention, because even though what happens in verse 3 sounds weird, we've all had part of this happen to us. Look at verse 3. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
Have you ever been around somebody who's just got way too much cologne or perfume on? And how do you know they've got too much cologne or perfume on? You can, you can smell them coming. In fact, I'm pretty sure the distance from which you can smell them coming is in direct proportion to how many sprays they used. Well, last week, I came in the front door of our house and I just got nailed by this wall of perfume smell. And I recognized the smell is this perfume that somebody had given to Lainey, our six-year-old. They'd given her a bottle of perfume. And I thought, that's weird, because Lainey's at school. And I started trying to think through the possibilities. And then right as I made the connection in my brain, I heard the voice of a three-year-old, our three-year-old daughter, True. And she comes down the stairs, and she's got all these necklaces on. And she's like, hi, Dad. I said, hi, True. She said, I'm pretty. I said, yes, you are. She said, I smell pretty. Uh-huh. So I found out that True, she wanted to make her left shoulder right here smell pretty. And then she wanted to make her left upper arm smell pretty. And then she wanted to make her left lower arm smell pretty. And then she wanted to make each of her toes on her left foot smell pretty. And then do the same with the right side of her body. And then she had in tow on a blanket about 20 stuffed animals that she just really felt like needed to smell pretty. How much of that bottle do you think True used? All of it. But I didn't need to see an empty bottle to know this because I walked in the house and I could smell it because the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And what do we see at the end of verse 3? The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. She had used the whole bottle on Jesus all at once. And we don't understand the magnitude of what she's just done until we see the reaction of one of Jesus' disciples. Look at verse four. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? And listen to this, it was worth a year's wages. Can you imagine working for a year? and taking all that money that you've set aside and buying a bottle of perfume and then using it all at one time. That's what Mary did here. And Judas looked at it and he said, what a waste. But what Judas saw as a waste, Jesus saw as something else. Look at what he has to say in reply to Judas. Verse seven, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended, some versions say she intended, that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. See, by pouring out this perfume on Jesus and then wiping it up with her hair, Mary wasn't wasting anything. Mary was actually acknowledging who Jesus was. She was anointing Jesus. And the anointing was an acknowledgement of who he really was. And Jesus tells us who he really was. One day in the town of Nazareth, he opened up the scriptures and he read from Isaiah 
61. And here's what he said. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he closed up the scriptures and he said, today, as you hear this, this has been fulfilled. This is who I am. Jesus hadn't come to exert power and force power on people like his disciples thought, like the Pharisees thought, like the crowds thought. He had come to preach good news to the poor and the oppressed. That's who he really was. That's what he was about. And God had anointed him to do so. And so Mary, when she anointed here, when she anointed the anointed one, she acknowledged who he really was. When she poured out the whole bottle here, she expressed her complete and total and costly devotion to Jesus. And by doing it in this moment, Mary took this one last opportunity because she knew that Jesus would have to die. And so she took this one last moment to express her devotion to Jesus. Now you step back from all that and you go, well, how did she know all that? I mean, how did thousands of people miss it that next day? And how do we miss it sometimes? But how did Mary get that? Well, here at Jesus' feet in this moment, this isn't the first time we meet Mary of Bethany, is it? Because there was a day that Jesus visited the house of Martha, who we saw earlier, and Mary. And what do you see Martha doing when he shows up? She's running around. She's getting the house ready. And she's upset. And she's upset with Mary because Mary's not helping her. Where's Mary at? She's at the feet of Jesus, hanging on his every word. In fact, Jesus said, Martha, it's okay. Mary's chosen what is best. And she was at his feet that day, and here she is on this day, at his feet. You see in a pattern here with Mary? See what, what Mary knew? was what so many missed. Mary had a vantage point of Jesus that had come from spending time at his feet. And what Mary knew and what we need to know is this, that our clearest view of Jesus is at his feet. Our clearest view of Jesus, it's not at a distance, it's at his feet. So a month ago, I see somebody I know from high school and I didn't know him very well, they were more like an acquaintance. And I heard from a distance, what's up, Nate? And I just went, oh, well, hi. I don't like that name, Nate, for myself. If you're here today and your name's Nate, I'm sorry. But uh, I just didn't, I don't like it for myself. I, I prefer Nathan. And so I get to be close with a lot of you guys, and you guys know me as Nathan. But there are three people in this world. A six-year-old little girl, 
a three-year-old little girl, a six-month-old little boy, and they, in a very literal sense, every day are playing at my feet. And they get to crawl up in my lap and do this and tell me I need to shave and all that. You know what they call me? Dad. Daddy. See, being at Jesus' feet means being and drawing closer to Jesus. That's what it means to be at Jesus' feet. And so with that in mind, I've got to ask you this morning, what is your vantage point of Jesus right now? Is he, is he a threat to your way of life? Do you have a list of things you'd really like him to do for you? Does he confuse you? I spend a lot of time there. Or maybe the thought of spending time at Jesus' feet is just something you don't have time for. I know I end up there more than I'd like to admit. And I think, well, Jesus, I already, I already know what this says. I already know what you have to say to me. But to see Jesus through those lenses, it's really to see him from a distance. Or do you have a view of Jesus that comes from spending time at his feet? Whatever that looks like for you. Time worshiping him. Time in his word, hanging on his every word, hearing what he has to say. Time in silence, just spending time with him, being in his presence. Because you know what happens? When you spend that time at Jesus' feet, it's not a waste. Something happens when you spend that time at Jesus' feet. You experience him as Mary did, as heavenly father, as dad. Now, a guy named Mark, who wrote, the book of Mark, and a guy named Matthew who wrote the book of Matthew, really original. They noted that Jesus kept talking after he replied to Judas. And they noted that Jesus said this, everywhere, everywhere, that the gospel, that is the message, the good news, everywhere that the gospel is preached, what she has done, See what she just did? What she has done will be told in memory of her. Have you noticed how when you hear the good news of, of God doing something in somebody's life, have you noticed what comes along with it? You'll always hear about a person. You'll hear about a relative, or you'll hear about a coworker or a neighbor or a friend who because of this person's time watching their relationship with Jesus, God turned the lights on in their mind. They had a light bulb moment in their heart. Because of a friend or a relative or a coworker, a neighbor or whatever, because of their time at the feet of Jesus, God used that to transform this person's life, giving this story or this testimony. Now, I got to ask you, don't you want that person to be you? Even if it's one person in this life, don't you want to be that person? Because I'm telling you, even if it's just one person, there is nothing greater you can do with this life. Nothing. Than to be used by God to transform 
someone else's life. That's why you spend time at the feet of Jesus. Because not only do you get a clearer view of who he is, but people watching your life and your time at his feet, they also get a clear view of who he is. Let's pray. Father, you are tremendously patient and merciful with us. Thank you for giving us yet another chance. Every single time we think we know who you are and we assume that you're about one thing, thank you for drawing us back to you and drawing us closer. And because you do that, Father, will you remind us to draw near to you, to make an effort from our end to come to your feet and then, Father, speak to us there. Give us a clear view of who you are so that we can grow closer to you, but also so that the world watching can get a clearer view of who you are. I pray for the opportunities we have this week to invite people next week to come and get a vantage point of you and who you are. And we just thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.